0: Now our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region, so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today we had, um, today we have uh, John Dillard and Paul Clark. Um, John is the CEO of Threat Switch, a local Charlotte um, compliance and security. Uh, startup, software as a service startup, just finished up in August 2020, just f- finished up a $1.7 million raise, as you'll hear him talk about. Um, and um, Paul is uh, co-founder of Venture South, which is a local angel network community, um, professionally run angel networking community. Um, investing in startups across the Southeast. So, um, good back and forth where we're digging through with um, John um, the development of Threat Switch, his background, um, how it came to be, um, and really dig into a lot about his development as an entrepreneur and the development of Threat Switch. And then um, we kind of co mix that as we've done in the past with the investor and how does the investor view John how do they do diligence it how do they continue to track and stay on top of it Um, as you'll learn um, it's the second time that uh, Venture South has made an investment in Threat Switch. So how does that interplay work and how does John handle it, et cetera, et cetera. So really fun, exciting podcast. Um, you know, as, as John says, um, he gets excited about getting up in the morning to go tackle compliance and security. And you can hear it in his voice. You can hear why he's being successful growing, um, this business, even during the current environment. So really great po- podcast. Hope you enjoy listening and learning more about Threat Switch and the Venture South Angel Community Network. All right. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, John and Paul. Excited about a good little conversation here.
1: Thanks for having us. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks.
0: So, um, Yeah, no, absolutely. It's going to be a fun call. So um, as my listeners know, John and, and Paul, um, we, we typically kind of just do a very light intro. Um, get you going, grease the wheels a little bit uh, for a smooth, easy, flowing conversations. So if you all want to... Um, just take a quick minute or so to do a, a light introduction, background of who John is, and then who Paul is, and then we'll jump into you know, our Q and A session. Sure.
1: You want uh, Paul? You want to go first? I can go first. Doesn't matter. John, okay. let's have John. you go first. Sounds good. Um, so uh, I'm John Dillard. I'm the CEO of ThreatSwitch. Um, as as you know, um, and I have been doing ThreatSwitch for about four years now. Uh, before that, I was uh, the founder and, and ran a company called Big Sky Associates, which was my, which was my first venture, uh, but really spent most of my career in defense, intelligence, federal contracting, started out at CIA, um, and ended up as an executive at a company called SRA, uh, which is where I learned all the, the boring stuff about security compliance that is the foundation of Threat Switch. So, uh, Of all that cool bio, the security compliance turned out to be the stuff that was most monetizable, so here I am.
2: <laughs> I hear you. Paul? Yeah, thanks, William. Um, so my name is Paul Clark. I'm um, one of the co-founders of Venture South. Um, I'm not from the Carolinas originally, but now I live in Greenville, South Carolina. I've been here for the last 10 years. I've uh, been working with the, the team of Venture South for the last six. Uh, and we are a network model angel group, which means essentially we get wealthy people together every month who invest in interesting looking startups in the southeast.
0: So awesome, um, and obviously we've got you on the call because um, Paul, because you were an early or you're an early investor in Threat Switch. Um, so, John, you just closed out. I guess you closed in August of 2020. Um, uh, was it a one point one point two million dollar fund uh, capital raise? Is that what it was? One
1: point seven. Actually, we had some notes that converted into it, um, so the total round size was about one point seven. So, yeah. And That's it was, awesome. Thanks to VentureSelf.
0: So, yeah. so um, you raised $1.7 million in the pandemic. How'd that go?
1: Um, it was interesting. Uh, we, we, you know, we started the year knowing we were going to do a raise in 2020. Um, yeah. And I think we thought we were going to do it. And, of course, Paul and I were in close uh, consultation on this at, at the end of first quarter. And then, you know, the end of first quarter turned out to be pretty weird, as you know. Um, so everybody a little taught, different. Everybody took their, head, took their hands out of the, the pot for a little while and just waited to see what would happen. And then I think, you know, we had a pretty solid Q2. And, and interestingly, you know, and not just uh, for us, but I think for a lot of companies, venture capital angel funding tended to open up a little bit in Q2 in a way that was, I, I thought, was a little bit unexpected. So it turned out to be uh, pretty pretty brisk once we had demonstrated that, you know, we had customers expanding despite the pa- pandemic, so I think strong companies were able to raise, um, and you know, we were doing pretty well, so I'm, I'm happy about that.
0: So, circle back around on that real quick, John, if you don't mind. So, um, you come into 2020 knowing you're going to raise money, um, and you mentioned you'd kind of talked to um, coordinate—I don't want to say coordinated—but in conversation with Paul about it. Um, so, talk about—I don't know—the the art of capital raising, right? Cause it isn't, I mean, it's a skill um, that some people are good at and some people aren't. So how did you approach it, um, coming into this year?
1: So, well, for me, it is, I think it's very much like sales. Um, and you know, if you, if you look at how we manage it, um, I have a Trello board that has about, you know, 150 names on it or names of entities, and they're in six or seven different stages, um, for all the way from I don't even I don't know a thing about them. I'd like to meet them. To they have signed a you know a term sheet, and th- you know that's really about relationships. Just like it is with with sales. I mean, people tend to invest in people. They tend to invest in. Uh, they tend to buy from people. So it's the same kind of thing. Um, in, in that you know you have to have a, a lot of relationships with a lot of folks. Not all of whom turn out to be investors many of whom pass on your round, but introduce you to people who will be investors. So, uh, you know, for us, you know, building really good relationships with a lot of folks, taking meetings, sometimes even if we know that they're not a great fit, because they, they might know folks who are, um, and just doing that every single week is is what you have to do. And move those folks um, who might be candidates through the process, and which they have their process too, so you've got to kind of align things to how they do things, um, because good organizations are pretty structured about it, like like Venture South is. And you, you simply move through it. And, of course, you start with your current investors. And Venture South was an early investor as well. So um, that's the way we approached it. Um, and, you know, people uh, having conversations is really how these things get done. Um, so you have to have a whole lot of conversations.
3: Yeah.
0: So, Paul, take us through a little bit on your end. So, you know, um, John, um, portfolio company already coming into 2020. Um, you know they're going to be raising money, um, so you've gone through due diligence with them once. You're going through them again. Uh, what's y'all's process like for you know a company coming through the platform? Um, yeah. in 2020 just in, um, just in general, not necessarily with the COVID pandemic, right? Just a general.
2: Process. Yeah, so it, it, it definitely varies on whether or not the company is one we've already invested in or not. So in John and Threadswitch's case, we've known John for. Three years now from when we first invested, at right at the very beginning of the story. Uh, so the diligence process for a company like that is a bit different because we've done our diligence on the front end at the beginning, and then we spend the last three years getting to know John really well. Um, so we can tell whether what he's telling us now, you know, is different from what he's told us in the past, and whether we believe it now, whether we believed it in the past. Um, and just given that that level of trust and knowledge of the business and him, we can we can make decisions a bit more quickly. Um, and so um, that process is a, bit, is a bit shorter and it's more along the lines of how do we figure out what what a sensible investment structure looks like more than do we think this is a good idea because we, we've already convinced on that part. But had we not known John, had it been a, you know, a typical company coming to meet us for the first time, then we have a, you know, a couple of months pretty rigorous diligence process where our goal is to learn as much as we can about this opportunity in as short a space as we can without tiring out the entrepreneur too much, but also making sure we have all the information we need to make an investment decision. Um, And we go through that process from from scratch. Um, And that involves sort of desktop work, reviewing financial statements and looking at cap tables and reviewing corporate incorporation documents and things like that. It involves talking to people. So talking to all of John's friends, talking to all of John's enemies, talking to people that John introduces us to, who presumably say good things, but also, talk to people that he hasn't introduced us to, that might be potential customers, or uh, you know, have an informed opinion about what they do. Um, and then we aggregate all that information together between our diligence team and, and decide, um, you know, what our verdict is that we talk about internally. So that's a bit longer. Um, we talk to a lot more people during that process, um, and we've continued to do that right through COVID and and you know, into today when we're looking at the new companies to invest in in the same way.
0: And y'all did virtual, y'all were, um, I don't want to say perfections that, um, had already perfected virtual meetings, but y'all, y'all were doing virtual meetings before COVID anyways, right? So this is, um, you know, uh, normal operating process for y'all to a certain extent.
2: To some extent. Yeah. So we were already doing a virtual meeting in each of our months. Um, most of our members still met in person for in-person meetings, but, We had the you know the zoom account set up and the and the facility at our headquarters for live streaming and all of that Uh, and so we had done that before and so it was a it was an easier shift for our members to plug into that piece of what we already had than to start a virtual angel group from scratch which which would be a challenge for a lot of people
0: yeah um as everybody figured out what zoom was right yeah um so um so um, John, just circle back and let's kind of dive in and um, talk about the business for a little bit. Um, sure. it's, it's, um, it's your virtual baby, topic. right? Yeah, it's your virtual baby. So let's talk about it. Um, so what does Threat Switch do?
1: So Threat Switch provides, it's software as a service. For So I imagine your listeners are pretty uh, familiar with that term. Uh, so we're providing a, a SaaS product to large enterprises, that are subject to very strict security regulations. So that means how they hire and monitor their folks against things like insider threat um, or espionage in the case of really sensitive data or in, you know things like theft or workplace violence and a lot of other things. There are a lot of rules that are usually by the federal government but not exclusively that they foist on our customers that are very difficult to, to manage. Um, a lot of reporting um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of forms, as you might manage, imagine, a lot of analytics that has to be performed to look for is- issues related to compliance and security risk. Um, and if they mess this up, they stand to lose a whole lot of money. So in, in some cases, they might lose their ability to do business with the fe- anywhere in the federal government supply chain. So you might be a third-tier subcontractor, which is, you know, that, that includes 350,000 companies in the United States. Any of these companies could lose a revenue stream or face pretty stiff fines. Sometimes these are existential in in severity, um, so uh, that's what we're trying to protect them from, from. So, pretty big companies typically. So, we're focused on the, the hundred million plus size companies in that set of companies.
0: Um, how you um, how and why did you get started in it? Um, so well, I mean, you, I, you said earlier you've got a background with the CIA, so I get that yeah. aspect of it, right? But how did you so, how did you come up with it?
1: Yeah, interestingly, you know, I I was doing the defense and intelligence work and I finished my, I guess what I'd call pre-entrepreneurial career at a company that is now part of General Dynamics, um, several billion dollar company. And I ran a chunk of the business uh, that did a lot of defense and intelligence related work. And, uh, you know, in addition to the actual productive work of the company, which had to do with technology implementations and, you know, really solving problems related to business process and strategy. Um, I was the guy who got in trouble if we screwed up the security regulations. If, if we didn't fill the right forms out, if, we, if our people didn't report their foreign travel, if they didn't uh, you know have the right credentials to work on a contract, my business was affected inside that company. So that's really where I learned um, how important it was and how much, how much time and money my company and my people spent on the problem. So that was really the kernel. Um, and you know, I started my first business, Big Sky, which was professional services, and it didn't really click to, to turn this into a software opportunity until after we started having customers because we were a process uh, improvement company really six sigma you know quantitative analysis of, of business process so when you walked
0: first, you walked in the door in that company and said here's your risk here's what's wrong here's what you need to improve at these yeah, are the systems and process the you need
1: exactly yeah. and then we real we had customers coming to us asking us to fix this problem related security compliance from a process perspective sort of in a bespoke and custom way. And it became very obvious that everybody had the same problem. It was the same rules. Those rules were not just in defense and intelligence, but also in financial services and healthcare. You see this with you know, CCPA and, and GDPR and a lot of related regulations um, related to both privacy and cybersecurity, that this was a software problem and somebody needed to build something better because the solutions that were out there and there are a few were either old clunky databases or just really not purpose-built for security. They were more general compliance products. And that was really when we, you know, we built a prototype and took it to a conference, and um, I, I got a tremendous response very, very fast. Um, and that's when we said, okay, well, maybe we should actually turn this into a company and, and make this thing happen. So, okay. Yeah.
0: So, Paul, on your end, there are a lot of folks out there, a lot of founders that um that kind of follow john's path right they they're a consultant um they work for a large company then they spin out they do consulting work um and then they say oh wow there's this great concept for a software product and they're just not it's not the right fit right they they they're not able to make the transition from a consultant over into a software company CEO, right? So how do, you, um, how do you do diligence, John, from that perspective to understand in 2000, was it 17 that you made your first investment? Yeah. Um, how do you do diligence him to know that he's the right makeup um, for the person that's going to make it successful?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a very long answer to that potential question, but it all comes down to guesswork ultimately. Um, you can't tell on the front end if this person is going to be successful or not. So you have to try to figure out what you can ask people to try to get to that. Um, and a key part of, of diligence is not just the skill set of a team. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of really impressively credentialed and you know highly articulate, very impressive people out there. Um what you need to try to find is do, does that founder have a sort of founder product market fit um and there's a ways you can get towards that so do they know their space really well is this something they have actually spent time being on the receiving end of the problem for or not and if they have and john had and i think you, you could get that from from what he just said um that that provides them an advantage because they know ultimately how how boring the product is but how integral it is and that's a a recipe for a successful company that um, you know it could be a powerful one so there's that there's just the sheer amount of connectivity that they have in the space can they go and call the purchasing decision maker at the companies they want to sell this product to or not and can they prove it can they give us a list of you know a couple of people that we could go call and will they answer the phone and will they say oh yeah i know john or will they say i have no idea what you're talking about and never reply to our emails so there's things like that, that that can provide you know pretty clear guidance at the front end, um, and then there's softer things. So you know how well organised is this person? Do they have a list of 150 investors to call and sales targets to call? Um, there's things like that that you know provide some 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 impression that they they can they can do what they say they're going to do. Um, and then in addition to that, a, a key part of being a successful entrepreneur is surrounding yourself with other people that are uh, better than you. And uh, When John was first pitching what he was doing, um, I wouldn't say the rest of the team were better than him, but he had a very strong um, set of other people around him. Jessica um, and you know several other people around the around the team that we were impressed by in their own merits, and therefore you know got a good sense that John could hire the right people to go help him execute this um, this uh, endeavor. Um, and so you fact, all those things together and you still come up with a fairly subjective judgment on whether they, this guy can do it or not. Um, but if you've got some evidence to back up your subjective opinion, you, you know, you can, you can make a decision.
0: Um, John, oh, okay. that's a, that's a high quality compliment there on, um, you know, being able to hire good people around like, you. The
1: best thing anybody can tell me is that I'm the dumbest person on the team. That means, <laughs> I'm, that means I'm doing it right. That's good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, how, um, so how, how, how soon into the, so you, you've got the concept, you build a mock product, um, you take it to, did you sit a trade show?
1: I did. Took it to a trade show and it was totally vapor. Uh, you know, and you really, you're just trying to get an indicator of, is this someone that would, is there someone who would be willing to part with some money to do this? And, uh, you know, we showed it to some folks and we walked out of that conference um, we had we had no idea how to price it, but we got in the case of it was happen to be Aerojet Rocketdyne um, agreed to pay us a thousand dollars, even though they knew the product wasn't done. I told them, you know, "Look, I'll give you a year of this thing for a thousand dollars, if you if you commit like right now." Um, and you know they ended up being you know more like a forty or fifty thousand dollar client after you know the product was released. But that proof that someone is willing to part with cash. That's the the, and I've oddly enough, and and Paul knows more about this than I do. I feel like that's the thing that especially technical founders tend to miss is that until someone actually is, you know, gives you money for something, you don't really know if it's something that is saleable. Um, so that was really what we were trying to set out to do. That's when we knew it was worth investing a lot more time of our own time and money, much less asking anybody else for money.
0: So, how, um, I mean, so you hear experienced founders talk about that concept, right? Which is get somebody to pay me for it. Um, how did you know to ask, just give me a thousand bucks, right? Give me, give, <laughs> give me something. I need, I need some, I need some dinner on the table, right? Give me a thousand dollars.
1: You know, it's, it sounds kind of silly, but you just, you have to ask even when it feels ridiculous. Um, oh. You know, it, you're, you're standing in front of an executive. that happened to be a security executive in a few companies. Um, Intel was one of those first ones too, by the way. Um, They know that there's nothing there, and you're like, well, we mostly finished the product, but it won't be ready until whatever, January or February. Um, There are companies that are culturally willing to take those kind of risks, but they'll never do it unless you literally look them in the face and say, um, you know, will you do this for $1,000? Will you make a commitment right now um, to do it? And I I think I even – I I think I set it up on, uh, you know – one of the sort of crowdfunding platforms as just a way of receiving payment because I'm not even sure we had a bank account at that point. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, uh, but they said yes. And, and, you know, the willingness to ask, if you don't ever ask, you're never going get, to get a yes or a no to anything. Um, and then as soon as they start putting money on the table, then you can have a deeper conversation about, well, what are you really paying a thousand dollars for here? Um, you know, is it because we have, because it's because of our our look and feel. Is it because it's easy to use? Is it because we have this feature? Is it why are you? And what if what if we built this thing? Is does that matter to you or not? Um, and that's all data collection for product. So, you know, kind of mirroring that early sales process with your product development process is the is the thing that is. And, and you know, you mentioned consultants who go out and do this. And the one I think that that I will tell you, having been a consultant for a good chunk of my career, most consultants would make absolutely terrible uh, founders. Um, I would I would advise investors to generally steer clear of them um, because they're they're afraid of no's. they they really want that because you're trained to deliver fantastic client service not to test no's in a in a product market fit kind of way which is a weird way of thinking so I had to really train myself to, to 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 rethink that way and get good advice from folks who had done it before to get to that point uh, because that's the most important thing in the early days is to try to prove out some sort of idea that's monetizable
0: yeah. No, you're right. So, um, so you get thousand um, dollars. Obviously, they end up being bigger clients. Um, at that point in time, that you've gone to the conference with, as you put it, a, a vapor product. Um, what? Um, how big's the team?
1: Oh, at that time, zero. Um, you know, basically me and a buddy who worked for my previous company who just knew a lot about the subject matter. Uh, hustling our way through it. So at that point, you make the decision to pull the trigger. Um, the first help we got, and the best advice I ever got from the very beginning, was from a guy named Deep Dillon, who is a dear friend who uh, uh, worked at Facebook at the time, was running a chunk of their notifications business. Get product help. Get somebody who's built products from scratch, knows how to test it. And so that was really the first, uh, the first piece of help that we got was someone to help do that. Then we. Uh, shifted over time. It took, it took a little while. You know, we contracted out the prototype version, but because of the kind of product it is, you really have to insource the engineering. So you build a basically a one-person engineering team to get the thing off the ground, and then you gradually add from there. And I don't think we added sales until probably March 17 uh, was roughly the time frame. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was me doing most of the sales, getting some product help and engineering help, and, and trying to kind of get piece it together from there. Um, we went through a program called Mach 37, which is an accelerator up in the D.C. area specifically for cybersecurity companies, mm-hmm. uh, which was also incredibly helpful. And just being around folks who had done a lot of it um, and who, uh, you know, had, had a good network. I mean, that's really how I found a lot of my early employees was through that accelerator program up in, up in the D.C. area.
0: Um, so first engineer, is that where you found your first engineer was through Mach 37?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, my first one, yes. And then from there, um, I'm trying to remember where, you know, it's kind of one of these, you know, friend of a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing. And you can't even remember how you got there, um, for some of the early hires, but yeah, the first couple were there particularly in product and also sales. Um, and then, you know, at at that point you have a, you have a little bit of a critical massive team that has their own network that you're working from. Um, that, that's really good, but you know we we got the product help that we got was from a guy named Ch- Jonathan Chashper who fractional product um, a really good network of uh, both engineers and product folks who, who helped us get that going, and then uh, and, you know our, our early sales hire uh, was a Mach thirty seven coach actually that was Jessica um, who Paul mentioned. And you know the the stages of the company are very different. The people who will help you build that prototype are not the same people who will get you from zero to five hundred thousand dollars in revenue. That are not the same people sometimes who get you from five hundred thousand to one point five, and those are not the same that get you to ten million in revenue. So, um, you know, different skill sets and interests are really critical that uh, that depend a lot on the stage of the company. It just you know, you're not going to build a team of three that'll stay the whole time because then they only want to do early stage startups, Uh, you know, work on other projects. So um, it's a bit of a, you know, of a a balancing act to try to figure out who's the right person for the stage of company that you're in. Yeah. So,
0: so Paul, just a so um, here's John early stage company, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, small company, Um, helping large companies manage big risk, Um, right? To me, that sounds like um, GE, not GE, but, um, you know, Microsoft or somebody else should be doing it. How in the world is this guy in in Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, with a team of three, um, gonna out pivot and develop a product? So, um, that you know, you know, uh, large corporations working with the government depend on, so they don't lose funding. Uh, how do y'all? Um, how do you determine that's a worthwhile risk? Right?
2: Yeah. Uh, so it's a question that doesn't just apply to John, though. It applies to every startup. Why? Why can't some massively funded public company go do this faster uh, than you can? Um, and if you never got past that question, you'd never invest in any startup. You'd just buy Apple stock. Um, and the reason that you can get past that is because those big companies can't do everything and they can't do everything quickly. Um, and so if you want to go test something new, um, you know, get somebody to pay you a thousand dollars, these companies are not going to pay Apple a thousand dollars to, you know, release their data to them. They're going to, they're going to work with other people that can move quickly, solve this problem by February, um, and not worry so much about, you know, Competitive intelligence and things like that, or, or losing staff to each other, and those kinds of issues. So, um, you know, if you if you don't believe the startups can compete at all, then you'd never invest in them. But if you believe they can offer something valuable quickly, and um, you know, iterate quickly, improve the product quickly, satisfy these real um, customer needs, um, then you can you can you can back them. Um, that's what you know. That's what we've convinced ourselves is the, you know, a feasible thing to do.
0: So you all make the investment um, because obviously you believe startups can win, um, and um, that gets proved out time and time again um you make the first investment you stay with them um and now you've you've gone in on the next round as well how do y'all um how do y'all monitor what benchmarks do you put on not benchmarks Mm -hmm. but kind of sort of benchmarks do you put on john and other founders as they've gone from first raise to second raise um and and on and on right i mean how do y'all continue to kind of work and track them
2: yeah. So, I mean, our basic operating thesis is we're going to invest in this company more than once because they're going to need some more money over time. So, that might be for good reasons that they've done a good job and they want to accelerate or do some other things as well. Or it might be for bad reasons that they haven't quite figured it out yet and they need some more money to keep trying. But we do anticipate doing you know, a couple of rounds at least with, with companies and really successful ones that go on to raise 10 rounds of VC money. We'll, we'll invest in them potentially 10 times. Um, so our, our default is that we are expecting to have to do that. Um, we will be more happy to do that, obviously, in the former scenario than the latter, but we're even more happy to consider it if we know what's going on. Um, and so our big you know, initial benchmark is do these companies tell us what's going on frequently, transparently, honestly, um, you know, and, and can we therefore actually know what's happening with these companies or not? Um, And even within our portfolio, which we think is on the whole, you know, more professional in terms of um, entrepreneurs than the average, and we think as investors, we're more professional than, you know, individuals investing in companies, even within that sort of smaller sample size, the variance in quality of reporting is pretty striking. Um, And so the companies that do a great job of reporting um, will be working on things like talking with us at the beginning of 2020 about their forthcoming round know, several months before it's actually, you know, on the table. Um, and so those companies are the ones that we can spend more time on because we feel much better about and end up writing checks to more easily than the companies that come to us, you know, two weeks before they can't make payroll and say, actually all this good news we've been feeding you hasn't quite been the reality. Um, and I'm not, um, yeah, it sounds a bit flippant, um, but I'm not really exaggerating all that much. I mean, the, the, the variance in the quality and timeliness of reporting is is disturbing. Um, and I will say that John is certainly in the top um, decile of, of high-quality reporting because um, he just tells us what's going on every month. Um, it's not pages worth of information. It's a quick update on what's going on, um, how that compared to last month, and what, what the problems are, and so we know
0: ahead of time what's happening. John how do you uh, how, how do you report that?
1: So we do a couple of things. Um, as Paul mentioned, we do and, and this is you know, a, you know a religious function for us. We are absolutely unvarying in how we do it a, a monthly update. the goal of that is they can read it in 60 seconds or less. it tells them the bad news first it tells them the good news after that and then anything we might need um, and it's a quick email. we send it to all the uh, the investors. So that's our monthly reporting. And then at the end of the quarter, uh, we used our board meeting preparation slides as sort of a first version of the investor, longer form update that goes along with financials. And so this is just a routine and it happens. I mean, it's not, you know, you set it up and then you, you really, it's so rote, you don't really think about it and you always do it the same way and you never hide bad news under any circumstances. Um, which you know to me, you know all the things that we have to do as a company, this is the easiest thing to to not screw up. I mean you know you have to build technology that doesn 't break and works and is secure. you have to go try to sell this thing to big companies you have to try to hire employees and keep them happy uh, you, you have to try to you know stay on top of all the things you have to do you know functionally to keep the company operating. It is not hard to just be very forthright and routine with your communications and why founders don't get this right out of the gate. I have no idea. Um, but it to me it saves me saves you a ton of pain. It enforces some discipline on yourself to be honest about what that bad news is. Because sometimes the process of thinking about what am I going to tell my investors will force you to think about, well, shoot, you know, you know this, this month was not as good in this way as maybe I thought it was, and, and I need to spend more time on that. So it tends to have some nice ancillary benefits for the company and being honest with itself, in addition to being honest with, with the investors. So routine and habit and consistency um, is, is the way we approach it.
0: Um, it's crazy. You can, you can hear it just, um, almost in your voice, um, without even, you, you could be talking about, you know, um, snow falling in the Alps or whatever. Um, and you're very process focused. Have you always been this process focused, Sean?
1: You know, I, yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of grew up. That was, I, I, I sort of focused on a lot of those things in my career from the beginning, even, even CIA, you know, you're looking at a lot of data and you're trying to analyze it. <laughs> structure it and communicate it. So that part of that is just me. Um, although interestingly, and my wife would tell you, I'm selective about what I choose to apply it to in my life. Um, <laughs> um, <but not> always. <laughs> whether, whether I you know, rinse out my coffee mug in the morning, for example, that kind of stuff is a little by the wayside, but yeah, I think right. you know, that, that's extremely helpful. Um, especially, you know, you can get away with being a little loose early in a company's life cycle but once you have customers and revenue um, and you have to take care of those customers and you have investors to communicate with and you have employees to keep happy, if you, start, if you don't start building processes that you can repeat, you're not gonna scale, you have no chance of scaling. Um, so that's really what we're focused on today is, is building repeatable processes that we can use over and over
0: so uh, still so along the way, um so again I mean you've raised um, a good chunk of money this year, John um, along the way you've you've made hires, you've expanded the business, you've made some sales, et cetera uh, where's the business stand today? Where are you employee
1: wise? Uh, we are at ten um soon to be hopefully eleven we've got one more hire coming, so relatively small, and you know I don't know that you know for our kind of company, the whole idea to some extent is to grow your revenue much faster than your headcount. Um, so, you know, we will add modestly to, you know, things like engineering and product. That probably doesn't need a ton more uh, work until you start adding additional markets or features and really growing the sales and marketing team to to make sure that you can get get the word out. I mean, our our, our biggest problem in our market right now is just simply people knowing that we are there. Um, and to some extent, you have to go spend money and hire people to go do that. So that's where we'll head.
0: How does the pandemic hurt that? Right, I mean, I would imagine that easy, a quote unquote, easy way to to juice sales is um, you know security trade shows, um, you know, flying up to DC or you know wherever um, all the consultant or not consultants, defense contractors, et cetera, exist and play and do different things. Um, does it put a um, does current pandemic put a kind of cap on it to a certain? I want to say cap, yeah, but
1: I mean it's it's there's it's definitely. I, I'm, you know, I'm reluctant to say anything's harder because trade shows are hard too in their own way. Yeah. Uh, but when you lose that that ability to reach a lot of people in one shot, you, you have to start doing other things. And so we we have had experimented a little bit with webinars. We switched that to a monthly thing. We typically have three to five hundred registrants now on our monthly webinars. So things like that are tactics that we've expanded our use of. But even even that, you know, it doesn't it just doesn't generate as many... New leads as a brand new conference does just because of the nature of, of who goes and what's happening so it's definitely you know our growth this year has been driven uh, a lot by existing customers as opposed to new customers because of that and you know it's we're, we're doing reasonably well but for example you know you have a twenty percent growth q2 well if the pandemic had not happened would it have been forty it might have been um, and you don't know uh, but there are key trade shows that happened in q two that didn't happen um, so Simply getting the word out is something that we're really, you know, I think like everybody else, struggling to figure out how people are behaving. You don't know how enterprise buyers are buying. Um, how are they doing their research? You know, presumably they're doing it in their pajamas at home like everybody else. So how do you get inside of that loop uh, with these new behaviors? That's, that's the key thing. So, you know, we have a, a, a marketing hire that we'll probably make soon. And I think we've changed the way we're thinking about what skills that person needs to have Um, in in that, you know, they can't do events right now. So, you know, a lot of the online and digital tactics are are probably more important in the skill set than they would have been if you'd asked me a year ago.
0: Yeah. Paul, how do you, I mean, how do you approach it as an investor, right? As a professional investor, um, threat switch in general, but I mean, the pandemic, you know, it hurts a lot of startups in the ways that they, um, would typically grow their business through things like trade shows and getting out and being able to see people in mass waves. And you know, obviously, it's not a mass environment right now. It's kind of a one-by-one one type scenario. So how do you think through startups differently um, in October 2020 than you would have in February of 2020, right?
2: yeah uh, so I guess the first way to answer that is we spent a bit of time right at the beginning focusing more on our existing portfolio than on new ones because those were the companies we knew the best. We could we could help the most quickly, we could understand you know the most thoroughly. Um, and so sort of in March and April we concentrated our attention on that set of existing startups that we knew very well. Um, but we quickly found that those had fallen into two buckets companies that weren't affected in any way by by this you know, medical devices, continued working on their medical devices. Um, enterprise sales customers continued selling to large corporates because they weren't going anywhere. Um, and then startups in retail and tourism and restaurants were just out of business almost immediately because there was nothing they could do quickly enough to respond to that. Um, fortunately, we didn't have money in that ladder bucket. So we, you know, our bandwidth freed up again to look at what the, the new companies would be that we could look at. And so we took that learning and looked at the you know the incoming deal flow and Probably not surprisingly, the incoming deal flow was empty of companies trying to sell restaurant technologies, you know, in, in May and June because they just they weren't there anymore. Um, but there were still dozens of companies around the southeast raising money for all kinds of things that sounded on the face of it like they would be pretty resilient to a COVID uh, threat. Um, so not so much in real estate technology, but lots in enterprise sales in enterprise technologies. Um, lots of medical, lots of you know, across the gamut of things. That it's been a story that um, COVID either wasn't affecting them, or they were actually unleashed some opportunities because of all this changing in in people's behaviour that perhaps brought forward the you know the the opportunity for them because people were doing things in a different way um, that that opened up some opportunities for them. So I wouldn't say our deal flow has changed all that much and our focus is not you know, fundamentally different now than it was six months ago, but we're, we're probably more attuned to those companies that we think you know, have, have demonstrated either that COVID isn't affecting them negatively or that, or that they have some opportunities now that they perhaps wouldn't have had before. Um, so just as one example, of as another, another, another Charlotte company, uh, Proctor Free does o- uh, online proctoring for student exams. You now was a somewhat challenging sales cycle to get people to do that, all of a sudden, everybody's doing an online exam. So, suddenly, that becomes top of everybody's mind and they could do well. Um, and so, right. they were an existing portfolio company of ours already, but had they not been, that would have been a story that we would have got today much more than we would have got 12 months ago. Um, and so, that, that, that's perhaps a nuance to the deal flow that, that has evolved a bit.
0: Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, John, what's, um, what's on tap, right? So you raised one, uh, um, $1.7 million this year. Um, what's the, um, you know, how do you, how do you deploy that? And then how does the business go from here?
1: Um, well, sort of two, two sides of that one, you know, the plan for us has always been to focus on sales, marketing, and customer success. So, um, you know, engineering is something that, you know, we have a product that is, Pretty baked. I mean, you know, different startups have different kind of uh, approaches to fundraising. We are largely funding our our product development and engineering from customer sales. Uh, And, you know, because we can sell the product and we're getting a pretty good price for it and we're retaining customers, you know, our existing product is pretty good. Of course, you have to continue to advance that. (laughs) But, um, you know, in terms of new investor money, uh, marketing and sales is the focus. And, you know, that thinking on that, as I mentioned, has changed. So, I think investing in things that will make more of our customers aware of who we are and then what we do, and what problem we solve, and how we solve it, um, and then sales teams that can go work at enterprise uh, procurement departments and, and work the system because it's very different from an SM, a small, and medium-sized business sale where you're selling to you know a company that can you know one person can pretty much make the buying decision and that's it. Um, you know when we sell to a company, and that can be you know we our customers are, are companies like. Intel and SpaceX and McKinsey and you know these big giant companies, there are 15, 16 people involved in the procurement. Um, and that means that you have generally one person who can definitively say yes and a lot of people can say no. and that requires a different kind of salesperson that has a lot of experience in that kind of thing. I mean our sales lead John Brooke, who we found uh, sort of through the Venture South network uh, in the beginning, a lot of our, our, our and that's what a good investor does for you. he plugs you into people who know people. Um, he's building a team that has experience doing that kind of thing. And that's, you know, not cheap and it takes a while to sell those deals. So you have to let it play out for six months. So the capital is there to both invest in those things and then, you know, provide the capital that we need to operate until the sales materialize, right? So that's, that's part of the calculus too, is how much cash does that give you to survive until those sales resources and marketing resources kick in, which for us is, is probably about six months. Um, so that's, that's the way we think about deploying the capital. Um, is making sure that we have enough for the investments to have time to play out um, so that when we get to the end of that cycle, we are in a nice uh, position uh, on return on that invested capital.
0: So, John, um, no small surprise here from our conversation already. You're a process-oriented person. Um, Have you already thought through um, the stages of the company, the next raise, how do you start to approach how the company grows, what you need to do to um, to get it to that place, et cetera, et cetera. How do you how do you process through that yourself internally?
1: I think the biggest difference and even in working with VentureSouth the first time they invested versus this time, and it'll be even more distinct in the next time we raise, is that as you mature, it increasingly becomes about metrics. Um, and you know, when, the early stage companies—you have a very good idea, you have a good team, um, you have no data necessarily, or not enough data to, de- de- to really demonstrate that whatever you're doing is working. Um, this time around in this raise, you, you have some of that data, but not necessarily a lot of it. Um, and the next raise for us is really about demonstrating over a period of time that we can, uh, with some you know, re- in some repeatable fashion. Um, we can sell. We know how long our sales cycles are. We know what our average deal size is. Uh, there are enough data points to show that that's, you know, something that is not just one off, but it actually is a pattern. Um, we know what kind of people succeed, what tactics work in sales, which ones don't. So I think uh, for as we build to a, a future round, um, you know, having building a data set, especially in sales. I mean, also on the product side, but certainly on sales, I think that's really where investors are are, are our focus for a company that is at that stage, do you have a data set that you've built over time that demonstrates that you know um, how long it takes to sell, how much you're going to sell, whether that's going to work over time, how big the market is, what portion of the market you have penetrated, what the obstacles that are, how you're going to deploy future capital to to, to enter different parts of the market or different markets. Um, And, you know, again, you have to, a lot of that is about investing in, uh, sales and marketing, and product and engineering uh, structures that produce those repeatable results. Um, so that's that's really what my head is. Is you know how do we get there? And that also has the side benefit of, of driving you toward a cash flow positive company, which is what you want to eventually do one day. Um, with that's all what that. it's a, that's what it's usually about, right? <laughs> that's that's the idea. And you know it's a heck of a lot easier to raise money when you don't really need it yeah. um, than if you're you know you're in a situation where you're you're doing it to survive. So for us, um, you know, the next round for us is to go do something affirmative to to launch a new product set, to launch a new market area, to, you know, do other things that are new, not because we have to, to survive. Um, it's because we want to go do something cool.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that in a second. I want to circle back around, um, metrics. Um, you pointed it out, uh, first-time founder of, of a startup company, right? Um, you had a previous business consulting, et cetera. So, um, how did you determine what metrics were going to make you make you successful? Was it um, uh, were they metrics that you just kind of came up with along the way? Did you lean into somebody like a like Paul with Venture South to hey, what do we need to do? Right, I mean, how do so? How did you determine metrics? And then Paul, how do you how do you determine your own metrics? And do you give those to the to the company or do you hold them close to your vest? Or so, how do y'all coordinate those metrics over time?
1: Uh, for for my part, and, you know, you, you know, the good thing about software as a service is I think you know, for at least you know, you're, you're now a good ten years into this being a pretty fast-growing segment, Um, and it's quite mature in a lot of ways, Um, folks have figured these things out. I mean, you don't necessarily have to go uh, invent new ways of measuring your success because you know what they are. It is, you know, net churn, um, CAC, LTV, LTV to CAC ratios, uh, you know, the the sales cycle. These are are pretty well-established metrics in software-as-a-service that we rely on, a lot of which... You know, some of the best thinking on this stuff comes from an organization called Saster uh, that runs a series of conferences and produces a ton of content founded by Jason Lemkin, who was one of the founders of EchoSign. Um, really great content. And that, so that's part of it is associating with other companies who are solving the same problem and watching every single month what they're measuring. And it does change every time. The second is investors because they do this all the time. And they're, they're looking at... Um, what other companies are doing, they're they're evaluating their own portfolios. And you will learn the hard way when you've been to about 20 pitches, when you're a new company, all the questions you're going to get. And the first time you do it, the first, the first 10 times you stumble and you stutter because you weren't expecting the the, the question. And now, you know, you know, a few years in, you're so, if you're, if you're doing it right, you should be so in command of those numbers that, there's just almost no question because the investors know what they're asking. They're they're generally pretty transparent about what they want to know. Um, there aren't a whole from, from good organizations. It's not like they're playing a lot of gotcha. So you learn to know the answers to those questions all the time at the at the tip of your tongue, no matter who you're talking to. Um, and, and Paul, of course, you know has their own that they 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 are pretty consistent with. So that's my take on it. Paul metrics yeah I think oh, um...
0: probably, my answer
2: is probably the same so it depends so back when we were originally looking at john the first time then the, the metrics we were looking at would be a, you know a bit more subjective for this round um and for companies that are raising you know a couple of million dollars then the metrics are more uh higher up the list of things to ask. um but we also wouldn't claim to be inventing you know novel pieces of diligence information we we read the same sources that john does about what are the right metrics to look at in SaaS or marketplaces or whatever the the business model is that we're looking at um, and we will we you know we'll plagiarize thoroughly from them and, and ask this the same questions that you know the best investors around are, are saying other are are the questions that you you need to ask we'll also add some other ones some curveballs and some random things that we come up with that you know reflect the uh, the backgrounds of our members or just wanting to talk about some other things as well to see how people respond but those core metrics you know net revenue retention you know, average contract value, all of that stuff, um, we're going to ask the same things that, that every investor is going to have. And a good, well-prepared entrepreneur will have a nice spreadsheet full of those to send as part of their diligence package to preempt all those questions, you know, right out the gate.
1: Yeah. So yeah John, one, thing, one thing I will add to what Paul said, just having pitched a lot of angel groups and in this last round, some more traditional VC, um, the thing that, and I think this is one of the ways in which Venture South is is so much better than a lot of their, their peers. A lot of good folks out there. Most angel groups don't have the experience in making investments that a group like Angels, excuse me, Venture Venture South does because they don't have a full time professional team. And when you pitch a lot of groups, the kinds of questions you get about metrics are you know you know like Paul and, and the team at Venture South they will ask very hard pointed questions about metrics that i should know and then they will ask deeper questions about how i calculate it that reflects a really strong fundamental understanding of how those numbers come to be when you go to inexperienced groups or one-off investors you tend to get a little bit more cute stuff you know that reflects maybe a, a, you know they were very good at whatever they did to make a lot of money so they can invest but they don't necessarily watch the metrics all the time and that's a really distinct feature of, of what I think are, are really professional, good investors and, and somewhat less mature investment groups is they have a total command of what those numbers are and how they're measured. Um, so can, so Venture out is great great
0: Can you sense the room then, John, um, not from a level of sophistication, but you walk out of a room after you've pitched to either an individual investor or a group of investors, um do do you walk out of the room and you say okay 70% chance I get funding from this or um gosh knows I was you know um 0% just because the sophistication isn't do you do that in your head or do you, do oh, you oh, yeah.
1: For- yeah you you I, I I don't know that I'm I don't I don't know what my hit rate is on, uh-huh. on being correct um you know the ones that get really badly are pretty obvious <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, you, you do, you, you, you rehearse things in your head and invariably, you know, the things that, uh, will, will tip me off is when people, you know, when an audience just does not have any questions at all, um, or there's just a disinterest. Um, uh, that's when, one thing usually, usually when you get a lot of tough questions. And you're running out of time because the questions are running long. That's kind of a good sign. Even if, and the, I think there's a misperception by founders, and maybe this is why they're not as transparent as they should be. I don't think good investors expect you to be perfect. You know, they expect you to be transparent about what your challenges are and that you have an idea of how to attack those problems. Um, I think a lot of investors will get tough questions. And they tend to freak out and fold, or they'll make up things that are not entirely accurate, or they'll evade. And that is a bit, that is a bad idea. If you're in front of a group of investors and they have any sense that you're evading a question, I mean, I I, I wouldn't put my money in that company. I'm not sure any investor should. So, yeah. uh, so some hard good questions are are a, a good sign in, in a so, pitch.
0: The so politicians shouldn't be fundraisers, then, huh?
1: Well, <laughs> um, so, um, to be f- fair, one of the better entrepreneurs in Charlotte is John Bradford, and he yeah. has a company, and he is also a politician. So, yeah, fair enough. Good point. This, not always.
0: Uh, they can switch hats. Um, what's the future look like for Threat Switch, right? So, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times and I've just kind of, uh, um, I've, I've evaded it because I wanted to kind of um, finish off with it and we're getting closer to our, our timeline here. Um, what is the future? What are the new product lines? How do, you, how do you grow the business from here, right?
1: I think for us, you know, if you, anybody read the news knows that compliance and security are not going away anytime soon for anybody. It's going to get harder, not easier, um, and that's regardless of regardless of what politics transpire. I mean, it, you know, we we've experienced uh, um, you know a, a lot of interest in what most people would see as a relatively deregulatory uh, environment, at least the United States. So um, I think that this for us the focus is is going to be solving new problems that are. Always demonstrate ROI to our customers. So we're going to be looking for regulatory uh, challenges related to security that costs our customers a lot of time. And the new one comes out every day. I mean, you know, California Consumer Privacy Act is a good is a good example um, that everybody's kind of heard of. But there are a hundred other ones that you haven't heard of that are producing more work for our customers, and that's and and more risk uh, for both security incidents and also for compliance problems. We're going to focus on the ones that cause the most cost, indirect or direct for our customers and expand into those areas, um, hopefully through existing customers. That's really where you want to grow, into those new feature sets. So um, developing product that solves that fundamental problem is the key thing. And you know, we know that the the, the space is just getting bigger. So um, continuing to, to focus on ROI for customers and evolving the product into those areas instead of just sort of doing and sky stuff chasing specific problems they have is going to be where we go. Great.
0: Um, a great way to grow the company. How do you, um, do you send like a monthly survey to your customers? Do you just pick up the phone randomly and say, Hey, what's the issue that you're experiencing now? How do you get that product feedback um, and, and take that and decide that's where we're going to develop the next product for,
1: right? Several things. So, it's a bit more continuous. You know. We don't do a lot of surveying because it's a little too infrequent, a little too point in time. So um, our customer success function, which is really you know, a mixture of support and engagement uh, to get customers to use the product more frequently, we're having those conversations every time we talk to them. You know, What else are you focusing on? What, el- what are the problems you have? Have you thought about using the product for this or that? And then taking that real-time feedback and then working with the product team. So that's an everyday kind of thing. Um, the other thing that, you know, we do is that we use tools in application to monitor usage of different of, of different parts of the application and use that to build product. Um, and then we do QBRs with every single customer because these are big customers. When you have big customers who are paying tens or in some cases you might have six-digit customers, you can afford to do a focused, deep-dive, quarterly business review with every single customer every quarter and, and you you have conversations about, what's going well, what's not going well, forget about threat switch. What are you guys wrestling with right now that we don't even help you with? Um, How how is the company doing? How is your function doing? And that's really, that's a huge piece of it. It's just understanding the customers on a fundamental level and what problems they have, uh, having nothing to do with your software. Um, That's where you uncover uh, opportunities to do things that that they haven't even thought of yet and wouldn't have occurred to them to use your product to fix. Um, So that's a huge piece of the product development. Um, I think increasingly, and we're hoping to do this in person. Um, but we started doing customer events. And we'll just have them come in to a, effectively like a webinar format and have a conversation about um, either part of the product or a problem that's related to the product. Um, the goal is to make those bigger and bigger over the next uh, year, um, and hopefully do them in person um, so that we can, you know, continue to drive conversations about how we can use this product to solve problems that we haven't. None of us have even thought about yet. Um, so that's going to be a big piece of the strategy you want for.
0: Yeah. How do you, um, you mentioned earlier that team members, um, some team members don't stick with you all the way through cause they're, um, they're one to five person team members, not, you know, 10 to 50 person team members. Right. Yeah. Um, how do you make the decision, um, about where the company sits in that space? In other words, how do you make the exit decision? Right. Um, where the company needs to be sold off to another company because it's going to thrive better in that environment. Or, you know what, I'm going to run this company until it goes public. How do you, how do you approach that? Right. And I know that's often the future, but how do you approach that thought process right now? How do you approach the exit thought process?
1: Um, you know, it's, it's challenging. And without going into too much detail, I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have had to think about that already, believe it or not, um, on at least one occasion, um, And you know, there are a couple things for us that I think, you know, are important. One is does it help our customers by providing them access to um, a new set of either it could be content or other product features if it's a complimentary company that help them get better use out of our product that effectively makes us faster? Or does it give us access to new markets and customers we didn't have before? I mean, those are the those are the two pieces, sort of leaving aside. Um, a lot of cultural issues and structural stuff that is sort of uh, more about fit and character. Um, so, but I think those are the considerations, Does and both of which have to do with solving the problem that we're excited about. I mean, if we are really excited and we get out of bed every morning trying to help people solve this pretty gnarly security compliance problem, what is the best, fastest way to get to as much uh, penetration on solving that problem as, pro- as possible? And that might mean exiting. Uh, because a customer buys you, or, excuse me, somebody buys you, and then you have 100 new companies that can now use your product. And that means you're solving the problem better. Um, provided the financials work, then that's something that you should take very, very seriously. So, uh, you know, for me, if it solves the customer problem, I think it can be good. Um, it, 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 But it has to do that for it to, to work well. And, and, you know, I think most Uh, companies that would approach an acquisition hopefully are thinking the same way, right? They're, they're, they're attempting to create something that's more valuable than the two entities independently. Yeah. Uh, At least for our kind of product. I mean, certainly you mentioned big companies earlier in the podcast, Uh, you know, to some extent there is a little bit of big company by a small company is purposely to kind of shut it down. And that does happen. Um, But I don't think that's really, that's, you know, that's probably not the norm. That's just the one that gets the most notice because, uh, you know, it's kind of the bad news for those small companies, but yeah. for us, it's complimentary play. I think that's the key thing.
0: So I'm uh, I'm glad there's people like you that um, get up in the morning and get out of bed to tackle compliance and security risks. That's <laughs> for sure. Is, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. Believe me. Well, this is the thing, man. If you're, <laughs> if you are a founder out there, odds are, it's a lot easier to make money doing something that nobody else wants to do. <laughs> because true. once people want to do it, there's probably a hundred companies trying to do it already. So believe me. Uh, sure. It's, it's <laughs> it's the nerdy jobs equivalent of software.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, again, I'm thankful there are folks like you that are doing it. Paul, how do y'all evaluate the, um, um, that exit for, you know, a company like ThreatSwitch, right? I mean, how do you approach it and, um, how do you think through it over, um, the due diligence process and beyond, right? I mean, cause now you funded it. Now you, um, you're actively just you know, paying attention to the company and how it does. And, you ultimately want to return for your, um, for your um, investors as well.
2: Yeah. So uh, it's absolutely critical for us in a diligence perspective at the beginning to figure out how we're going to get our money back out of this thing someday. <laughs> um, it's sort of number two of our criteria behind, you know, is the management team any good or not? Um, and that's something that most entrepreneurs aren't thinking about, you know, five years ahead of a potential exit. So um, oftentimes um, the answers around that are pretty weak. And you know, sometimes it's too early to tell. But in reality, if you don't have a plan of why you're doing this, um, you're not going to just luck into an exit. You need to have a strategy and a plan and a goal. Um, and so uh, we, we diligence that pretty heavily. After we've invested, then that timetable always gets pushed out a year or two. We just need to build this first. Then we can talk about exit and more. We just need to hear this metric. And then we can, you know, we can we can work on exits some more. So we spend a lot of time post-investment just making sure exits on the agenda. It doesn't have to be the top line on the agenda, but just make sure that it gets mentioned at every board meeting and that every time you know, I reply to John's monthly email, I say, we don't mention anything about exit this month. You know, any, anything changed on that front yet? Um, and the tone of those suggestions gets increasingly uh, strict as the sort of five-year goal horizon comes along. Uh, We we spend some time trying to keep that on the agenda uh, because usually it just doesn't happen overnight. It needs to be a part of a process. um, And uh, as you can tell, John's process oriented. Most entrepreneurs are not uh, as much and most of them don't get to the stage of putting exit preparation into a a process function in a business. So we spend a lot of time trying to encourage them to, to do that. And if that doesn't work, they get so fed up with us asking the same questions over five or six years that they actually go and do something about it, um, and take us out, pay us out, you no know, returns the money to us, or get bought because they, you know, they realize that this is what needs to happen. Um,
0: it's, that's, it's critical. So, oh. uh, makes a ton of sense. Um, so, if it's, um, it is hard to imagine that we're um, we're up on our time, right? I mean, gosh knows we flew through an hour um, uh, talking about, you know, um threat switch and then y'all's process and evaluating it. So and you can tell or at least I think I can tell that founder and investor in this instance match up perfectly right i mean venture south is known for having a great process um and john i think you did, um, demonstrated an ability to to understand process um a, at least a little bit as well so it's seems like it's a great fit um you know, for the two of you and certainly wish you know both of you tons of success here over the course of i guess um the next, what, um, four month or four years and 10 months, Paul? He's got five-year runway from, from oh, August, right? Oh, that's funny. So, uh, But thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I mean, it was great to learn more about Threat Switch, It was great to always talk about um, Adventure South again. So uh, I really enjoyed having you both on the podcast today. Thanks very much. Enjoy, enjoy
1: being here. Thanks, man.
3: This space is up. I think the owner of and an investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.